Welcome to the second season of the Duck Industry Podcast. Like in 2020, the podcast was realized in collaboration with the What's Up with Docs podcast and the programmers of Color Collective. Join us for discussions on topics such as the limited representation of brown LGBTQ plus stories in the cinematic space, the lack of inclusivity in the mainstream press, and the possibilities of Caribbean avant-garde cinema. The Doc Industry Podcasts are funded by Creative Europe, the City of Leipzig, MDM, and BKM. Thank you to our partners and collaborators for their contribution. Enjoy! Positivity culture and whiteness gone wild, or if everything is possible, nothing is true. A comedic and at times dark view of recent pop culture documentaries exposing abusive practices wrapped in positivity culture and self-improvement. While analyzing the documentaries in this conversation, we will attempt to answer the following question. Why is it that when white people seek to find purpose, a sense of community, or something greater than themselves, it always tends to get very culty very fast? Content warning for this conversations are coercion, abuse, sexual assault, and death. My name is Shakira Rifos, and I'm the Education Outreach Manager for the California Film Institute. We produce the Mill Valley Film Festival and the Docklands Documentary Film Festival in Marin County, California. I am a Black woman with Afro-Caribbean heritage, uh, born in Western Europe. I love documentaries of any kind. I have a soft spot for biopics and exposés on high and low culture. In the past few years, the trend on streaming platforms have leaned towards true crime documentaries and audiences cannot get enough of what my girlfriend and I call crime time. She and I will give in that, any series in that category a, a fair shot. And we can usually tell in the first few minutes if the doc is going to give us that rush, that like voyeuristic rush we are looking for. Most of the true crime documentaries out there have a few things in common, but two things I've noticed most. The first being that the culprit in the story, the person responsible for committing some of the most violent crimes in American history, the culprit is pretty much always white. Something else I've noticed happening in stories about murder or assault is when a subject close to the protagonist of the film gets interviewed, a neighbor, family member, detective on the case, you name it, Nine out of 10 times, someone will say something to the effect of, I would have never suspected it was them, or they would be the last person I would have suspected. They didn't look like the type of person that would be capable of doing something like this. Nobody would ever guess that they could do this by looking at them. Let's think about those two things real quickly and how they correlate. It never fails. Pay attention to this and sit with the two points I've mentioned and ask yourself, what should someone who would be capable of these types of crimes look like to you? It's quite a subtle thing sometimes, isn't it? That kind of racism. But more than true crime series, I love a documentary about a scam, especially when it exposes something about white culture. We can name them, the WeWork documentary, Nexium Cold Doc, Bikram, Lula Rich, The Inventor, Firefest. A pattern in those stories is the presence of one charismatic leader 
who will do whatever it takes to make money by controlling the people looking to them for guidance. They all consider themselves above the law. Everybody featured. Most people victimized in these stories initially made a choice out of free will to participate and ultimately continue to believe the lies they were being told. Another pattern is that you rarely see a black person or person of color participating here. So why are white people like this? The title of this podcast mentions positivity culture. Um, and I'm reading from an article that we will link to in the description of the podcast. Uh, we define toxic positivity as the excessive and ineffective overgeneralization of a happy, optimistic state across all situations. The process of toxic positivity results in the denial, minimization, and invalidation of the authentic human emotional experience. This can lead to feelings of shame, isolation, and suppressing of a lot of other emotions. Just like anything done in excess, when positivity is used to cover up or silence the human experience, it becomes toxic. By disallowing the existence of certain feelings, we fall into a state of denial and repressed emotions. The truth is humans are flawed. We get jealous, we get angry, we get resentful, and we get greedy. Sometimes life can just flat out suck by pretending we are positive vibes all day. We deny the validity of a genuine human experience. So I'd like to introduce the two people in conversation with me today by asking them a question related to positivity culture. Jawara Gordon, a great friend of mine professionally and personally, we have worked on countless community focused projects together. Both of us have a great passion for getting people together and having a good time with them um, and providing an, an, an atmosphere where people can like relax and enjoy themselves. Jawara is a mixed Afro-Caribbean, white American, straight, cis man. And we go way back to our high school years in Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jawara. Hey, Shakira, what's up? We are, yeah, that's, that's uh, down in the deep, deep south, southwest Florida. I forgot about that part. Southwest Florida, that's right. Um, yeah. That does provide a little bit of context here and how we think <laughs> about white, white people and whiteness. <laughs> Um, Juara, what is it about a live, laugh, love sign at a white woman's house that makes you want to run <laughs> to the opposite direction? Uh, yeah, I get that. I get to uh, get out by, you know what I mean? When I walk in and I see that, I'm just like, okay, hold up. In a few minutes, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be in the back of this place with my head getting, you know, cut up or my brain taken out or something. Because it's just one of those things. It's just, you know, everything that goes along with it. You know, you know, she probably bought that from some, you know, MLM situation. Someone was, she's probably gonna try to sell me one and try to get me to sell my <laughs> friends this love, love, love sign, you know? Um, yeah, that's that's a red flag. That, live, live, live life, love, happiness all times. Mm -hmm. um, that That is a, a red flag for you. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, it is because it's like, I don't know. Couldn't she just feel that way? Like on the inside? Does, there, yeah, why does it have to be? Like, yeah, like, does it have to be like this big, you know, credo thing, which it's automatically that's, that's, start, it starts getting all culty automatically? You know what I'm saying? Am I coming to your house? Or am I coming to your cult? I don't even know. So, uh, thank you, Juara. Uh, Kate Stewart, <laughs> decentralized food system advocate, professionally, and my girlfriend of almost three years personally. <laughs> 
Kate is a white cisgendered queer American woman. Kate Stewart, what is it about a live, laugh, love sign at a white woman's house that makes you personally want to run into the opposite direction? I mean, it feels like a threat. But also, as I've said before, uh, live, laugh, love walked so that pink pussy hats could run. Right. Which means basically like the threat of positivity culture without like looking at power makes it so that liberal Americans can run forward without also looking at power. It's it's a mm. it's it's the minimization and the tradition of like simplicity without nuance or without criti- any reflection critical thought, without critical any critical thought, thought right. that basically er- it's erasure, right? It's a whole erasure. Plus it looks very bad. It's not even attractive. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very bad. Can we talk about that font? Can we get some new font in here for yeah, a bit? No, that font. Maybe if it was a different font, I'd feel differently. I think I would. We should try it. Let's try a test. Yeah, let's try it. Well, we should start an MLM. <laughs> All right, I'm off. <laughs> All right, excellent. Let's get started by talking about some of these documentaries, the red flags, the yikes moments, the lack of critical thought, and the question of why are white people like this? Um, the first documentary we're gonna talk about is We Work or the Making and Breaking of a $47 billion Unicorn. The logline for this documentary reads, the rise and fall of the biggest corporate flameouts and venture capitalist bubbles in recent years, the story of WeWork and its hippie messianic leader, Adam Newman. So Adam Newman's dream was based on um, a philosophy that he grew up in, um, which was you know, living in communal spaces. Um, and he realized that what he wanted to do was to create uh, co-workspaces so that people could like vibe off of each other's ideas. And, you know, uh, because it takes a village to heal the world, basically. Um, that's what that kind of felt like to me. And I just want to say that, you know, the red flag for me here showed up very early. Um, we had WeWork that eventually went into like, we live. And that went into like, we grow, which turned into, you know, a, a WeWork philosophy that would like raise our children or something. It was like an actual private school. But before all of that, as soon as the WeWork concept came up, like for me personally, working from home has been a blessing for many reasons. I work in a nonprofit space. So like I work with a lot of white people and I love my white coworkers, but I love them even more when I don't have to see them in person every day for a lot of different reasons. So the whole concept of we work was to me like already kind of like not that was already the concept was the red flag. Uh, you are, <laughs> what did you know about WeWork before you watched the, the documentary? Uh, I didn't really know anything about it. I didn't know anything about WeWork. You know, they hadn't really got much into our market down here. You know, although I got to be honest, getting ready for this podcast, I was like, man, I could really use like a, a quiet place. I could just like rent for a couple hours and <laughs> not have to worry about any cats running around or anything. I was like, hmm, I wonder if there's a place like that. But no, uh, yeah, I hadn't heard of it before. And, um, uh, and, and until it went bad, you know what I mean? I, I didn't get any of that, you know, nice marketing stuff that they're talking about uh, to get anybody signed up. But I did hear that um, this dude managed to lose $47 billion and then they gave him more money. That was amazing to me. $47 billion. Yeah. 
Um, so at what point, so this, I, I would say that the WeWork concept for a lot of people, especially if you like what you're saying, like if you don't have a home that's conducive to working, if you're starting a company or an organization, it is nice to kind of like be able to collaborate with like-minded people. Um, Jawara or Kate, like when, at what point did this uh, documentary, documentary reveal how fast this got culty? I think it was pretty, uh, well, I mean, it got culty immediately. <laughs> if you watch this documentary, but people didn't, people didn't catch on for a while with this guy. I mean, like you mentioned, he got into all kinds of other different types of business first and got his hands all over the place before anyone was like, wait a minute, you know, this, is this dude like for real? Like, you right. know, is, is this, is this like the walking, you know, representation of narcissism, you know, and it's like, you know, physical form. Seems right. Well, like there's, there's a fine line between like a narcissist and like someone who, has clearly a lot of charisma and a running thread that you see in all of these documentaries is that there is a person who people just like really want to be close to. And mm -hmm. I think that that is also like a problem of like whiteness, mm -hmm. like white people want to find someone exceptional to follow. Right. Like they want to feel chosen. They want to be seen by someone exceptional. And right. so th that's where the, where Adam Newman like really started to like lean into his own nonsense and where it felt like that's when things started going wrong. It was the summer camp for me. I mean, a required summer camp, if your work requires you to go to an adult summer camp, that for me, that's a red flag. Mm -hmm. Like I'm yeah. already, especially because these are all primarily like startups, they're trying to revolutionize work. Meanwhile, this man is a landlord. Like, let's just say it. This guy's a landlord. He's a landlord with a keg and a cappuccino maker. Except that he gets the cappuccino wrong, which is another crazy uh, That was weird. Yeah. There's a yeah. scene in this documentary where someone comes to interview and they go down to the espresso bar and Adam orders a cappuccino. But what he's really ordering is a latte. But because of the way that this man's ego is everyone yeah. in the building has reworked what a cappuccino is yeah, to be yeah. a latte. everyone's decided that a cappuccino yeah. is now a latte because they don't want to tell adam newman he's wrong that feels yeah, culty. yeah, yeah. yeah. It does. This is, so it's the summer camp it's the scene where it's a ton of white people sitting around like gentrification station a mm -hmm. bar and mm -hmm. they continue to play what is it they're playing juicy over and over and over again or something for like six hours <laughs> yeah it was it was, you know it was juicy. That, it's um, but he's a landlord. Like well, it always comes down to that, right? Well, he's a landlord with a with a vision, and like I respect that because, like, I myself have also written a business plan while being high on Molly. Sure, I mean, no one's surprised by that, right? <laughs> And the ideas aren't even that bad, you know? There's something I feel like WeWork was designed specifically for people doing that, writing well, screen yeah. screenplays yeah. while on drugs and have nowhere else to go. And really believing, like, yeah, creating tech companies with a dream and really believing that whatever that tech company is doing is going to revolutionize the world. So it's a bunch of people that feel like Adam Newman, like they can change society through right. capitalism together in yeah. a space yeah. drinking cappuccino lattes and listening to juicy it's a thing that we'll see throughout all these documentaries when individual wealth and 
personal personal gain and like optimization goes hand in hand with the idea of collective liberation. Mm. It's not possible, right? How can you be an individualist and have personal wealth and also make it seem like it's and absolve yourself under the name of collective liberation? Because at the end of the day, you're a landlord with good hair. <laughs> Where's the community? Where is it? What if Paltrow's there? So uh, knew it was going to get weird. Okay. All right. So that was we worked the making and breaking of a forty-seven billion dollar unicorn. But um, let's move through to the next one, um, Lula Rich. Um, so and uh, and we work. So we work premiered at South by Southwest uh, this recent year. Lula Rich premiered on Amazon last month. Um, I've probably watched it five times. I'm obsessed. It's iconic. Yes. And we're going to talk about some of the reasons why. The logline reads, um, the billion dollar clothing empire, LuLaRue, stands accused of misleading thousands of women with their multi-level marketing platform. Um, So Kate, let's talk a little bit about um, Lula Rich. Well, we'll make the connection between Lula Rich and WeWork, even though it's pretty clear, like these organizations, these companies are both built on creating wealth, um, about pursuing the American dream and, but, but they wrap it in creating a sense of community. And you really see that in Lula Rich. Um, how does that connect to the idea of a, of a mid-level marketing scheme and what we see, like just going wildly wrong in Lula Rich? So I love Lula Rich. Mm-hmm. I'm obsessed with it. I think it's a horror story and I also think it's iconic. Um, and if you watch the, one of the ads for Lula Rich, they talk about one of the quotes that I keep thinking about, we are mothers building a community, making a difference through social retail, which is a wild thing to say. Social retail. Social yeah. retail, making yeah. a difference through social retail. And when it comes down to it, it's, it's you know, really ugly leggings right and but what this is what for me what lula rich is doing is it's highlighting a huge gap in our economy Mm -hmm. and in what we perceive as the american dream and our commitment to making it work even when Mm. we know it won't work Mm -hmm. right these are many many stay-at-home moms like this is primarily they targeted stay-at-home moms Stay-at-home moms in a world, in a, in a country where there's no universal health care, mm-hmm. where many of these women have to make so much extra money just to live. And yet these women are committed to this idea of, if I work from home, I'll be at home more. Oh, right. But it's an MLM, right? So you won't be at home more because <laughs> the whole thing of the whole MLM in which the owners continue to say is you make of it what you get. So simultaneously, they're marketing, you're going to be with your family. This is a family-oriented business. Meanwhile, they're like, if you're not selling these leggings, you're not a motivated seller. And I think for me, one of like the most iconic parts of Lula Rich is this selling a story of boss babe culture. Boss babe, girl boss. Girl boss. Hashtag girl boss. Live, laugh, love. Live, laugh, love that for us. Like, it's not... (laughs) Meanwhile, everyone is white. Meanwhile, everyone's white. There's donkeys on your leggings. Like, it's not a good look. It's It's a a mess. mess. 
But they don't have like a Beyonce collection in LuLaRoe with like, you know, oh, like God, urban, like print. Do. Okay. I yeah. loved that. But like definitely pre-self-titled album. Yeah. So Kate, good, where, where, good. where do you see the, where do you see the whiteness show up? Oh, you were talking about one of the most iconic scenes. Well, no, I see, I see the whiteness show up in that these are all primarily white women and they're stay at home women. And it's also fundamentally pushing this traditional family structure, this white American dream. Mm -hmm. What they're doing is they're saying you can have it all, but they're also saying retire your husband, but put your husband first. Something that I think is really great about Lula Rich is when they walk into the documentary, they're saying, this isn't a pyramid scheme. This is about people. It's not about leggings. And then on further investigation, you found out that both of the owners and the founders worked for Amway. And side note, I don't know if you guys know who Amway's owned by, but it's Betsy DeVos's husband, which to me... Hey. <laughs> Betsy DeVos's husband... It's all coming together now. <laughs> yeah, right. The thread <laughs> is always there. So Betsy DeVos's husband owns Amway. Yeah. Betsy DeVos, former Secretary of Education under Donald Trump, who also turns out to be an investor in um theranos right the elizabeth holmes documentary that we're going to discuss so probably one of the most and and, and of course um betsy devos's brother is owner of blackwater right probably like the most wow. evil family in existence right now in an in american existence you go to their house for thanksgiving they just like have children what are they, you know what i mean what do they have it's terrible exactly and leggings <laughs> so um so let's get so also juara you are a single father um you're a very attractive man also so you must know um uh, you know uh, you must know a good amount of single mothers have you ever <laughs> and i'd like to know them have you ever been approached to buy something from someone who is um who is working under the auspice of a mid-level marketing scheme uh yeah no i definitely definitely have and it's happened in a lot of different ways and you know first of all it might happen under the guise of like you know hey what's up? You want to like hang out sometime, you know, get something to eat, whatever. Boom, boom, boom. Next thing you know, you're going to piss on something, you know, and it could be yeah, anything from some like uh, oils or some kind of like, you know, uh, I mean, they don't normally get me with the leggings, but you know, I will say that there have been times that the humbots have got me with the leggings because, you know, like they don't sometimes go by the name or whatever. They just, you know, will mass out everybody that they can. And uh, definitely more than once. Media. Yeah, definitely wants through, so, what did you call it? Social uh, retail yeah. <laughs> contact. They social oh, retail yeah. have contacted me thinking that, you know, I'm a single mom instead of a single dad. And um, yeah, immediately try to get me to sign up for these things. And it's always like, it's like the same experience of getting like love bombed, you know? You know, yeah. you, you need this and we need each other and, you know, you're going to be so good. And, you know, it's, it, it really, you could see um, all of that kind of tie into all the other documentaries that we've watched and are discussing, you know, there's kind of a common thread between that as well, too, where it's like, you know, they're really trying to get, to get you to um, be the hero of this story so that they right. can convince you to, you know, uh, do whatever it is and give them their money eventually, you know? So, so love bombing is a great way to like, frame what happens when you get approached by someone who wants to sell you something or wants to get you to be a part of their MLM. Being a, being approached by someone who is selling something through an MLM is jarring. I, I also want to say that like black people do love themselves some Tupperware. 
Okay, but Tupperware works. Tupperware works. It's not even an MLM anymore. Right. It's it's actual legitimate business. But Tupperware also will just work until you put some spaghetti sauce or curry in it. It will be bodied. It's game over. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You want to you want to pro tip. You want to use that old uh, uh, butter container for the spaghetti. You know what I'm saying? So the term consensual delusion was introduced mm. to us in this documentary called Lula Rich. Um, Kate, uh, just to close off, can you just chat a little bit more about um, some some of the moments that you found interesting or what you took from, from Lula Rich before we move on to the next documentary? I think with Lula Rich and consensual delusion it is sort of and it comes into this like cult mentality of and it makes me think I mean, it makes me think a lot of christian prosperity theology which is the idea that we are in enti- that it's god's will god's will in a christian sense that we have money wealth health all of that without ever looking at like systematic decisions that white people have made so Ooh. you know what we will do is we'll say we're entitled to this you make of it what you get. This is what God wants. And it is a entire quote community, which is just white people committed to not telling the truth, usually in bulk um, of white people in bulk is one of the scariest things I have. White people in bulk is January. Yeah. So, okay, and the sense, but this, you, you are a part of this community until you actually choose not to be. There's a, there's a part in this documentary where um, the leader is asking the women mm. selling the leggings to actually get gastric bypass surgery. Okay, so she's asking them to do that. And I think that this is, and I think that this is a really important part. I think that's something that we do is we, we, we white people. Okay. Sorry we white people do is that we make these documentaries, you know, there's some that are, have a, a, a really dark abusive ending like um, Nexium. And then there's decisions like Lula Rich where this, there is a level of free will, right? You can be pressured to get gastric bypass surgery, but at the end of the day, that's your decision. You're not actually a victim. You can choose to pull out you can choose to pull out of getting these leggings, of getting the gastric, of buying the Lexus, whatever it is. But our commitment to power is the key part. White women aren't victims because they bought a shit ton of leggings and it didn't work out. <laughs> you entered into an MLM. That how You looked at these leggings and you thought, this is my chance to have an exclusive entry, to sell things, to have clout. But then at the end of the day, what we want to do and what I'm going to come back to this later, white people want to be exceptional, but we don't want to be accountable. That's why we look for a Messiah-like leader who will show us, who will absolve us of all of these things, who will show us what community looks like. But at the end of the day, no one's addressing power. So when it doesn't work out, that sucks. But if you went and you got gastric bypass surgery, ma'am, no one drove you there. And I, I guess creating the documentary. Okay, okay. But but what if they had some collateral on you to make that happen? But it didn't. That's, well, that's abuse. I know. So that's, I know. That's, that's, that's the fine line between these things. Lila Rich, this woman is in her deposition swishing her pink drink around being like, I don't know about that. Meanwhile, she didn't actually have collateral. She was like, so, so this is another part about white women, right? We will take, if you stop talking to me, that's collateral. <laughs> <laughs> You're causing harm. You're 
abusing me. Ma'am, ma'am, it's not abuse if they respond with K to a text. Sorry. I'm sorry, but it's not. Oh my God. My ex. Fair enough. All right. All right. Great. Thank you. Let's move on to the next documentary called Fire. Um, so this is one of t- two or three of these documentaries that had basically like two versions of the same documentary come on at the same time. Um, but we're going to talk about the, the version called Fire. Mm. But um, ultimately, we're talking about both. So the Fire app is created to help book top musical acts and a grand music event is planned to mark its launch. Supermodels film promos promising tropical luxury and the Internet buzzes with anticipation but the reality does not live up to the promise. Um, So when you're talking about consensual delusion that, you know, this documentary (laughs) really from like the big, I enjoyed the shit out of this documentary because it was like watching wealthy white people buy into something because they see other people do it like this like um FOMO mentality is like it brings me great joy especially when there's really no like emotional harm or there's not not no abuse but like let's talk about the fire festival documentary because the worst thing that really happened is like some kids were on a stranded on a beach and they had a a, like a cheese sandwich well and the community. but they but they paid for a nice cheese sandwich and they didn't pay to go glamping you know what i mean they just yeah, right kids. oh yeah you're right juara we should this should be about feeling bad for them what <laughs> what juara what were some of the most kind of like iconic moments uh and kate as well what were some of the most iconic moments in the fire documentaries um, and then we can talk about how, how it relates to whiteness a little bit later. Let's just talk about like the insanity of it. <laughs> okay. Okay. How about when they're outside that dude's house, like ready to like, you just like raid in and take him out. He's <laughs> just like yeah. hiding Lord for his life God. after he, you know, ripped off a whole entire, like, you know, towns worth of people and, you know, for like the whole like life's worth. Um, that's a pretty iconic moment to take away from that. I mean, that, that seems a bit more sinister than just a cheese sandwich. Right. So I think what Kate was just trying to mention in Juara, what you are talking about. So um, the uh, this event was planned uh, on an island in, in the Bahamas, I believe. So not only were the people who bought tickets to the fire festival fooled into believing something that the emperor like actually had clothes, like there was nothing on this island, but there were a lot of people on the island who worked on this festival, who provided catering, who provided logistics, right. who were provided hospitality while people were building this event that actually never came to fruition. All, all natives, like native people that live there. Who, yeah, right. Who, who were from there and who were actually harmed. So that, so, so, so that is definitely something to, uh, interrogate as we're watching this but what i'm really more looking for is like the like the insanity of it all and like the way we just watched white people just like continue to believe something that clearly wasn't true like there were moments in the documentary where people were like this is not going well yeah but then continued to take a plane and go to the bahamas (laughs) or continued to work on this project there was Uh there were so many opportunities to stop right so it wasn't just it wasn't just influencers it wasn't just rich kids 
seeing someone else buys it. So I'm going to buy it, which by the way, MLM vibes. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I love it. It was also a whole entire operation staff, experienced operation staff coming from the global North into the Caribbean, seeing it fuck up and then being like, well, I guess we'll still post about it. There was one character who said he was going to like, I don't give head to get water for the festival and was like, and I'll stick beside him. Like that literally happened. There was a decision. There was decisions made wild violating decisions made, but because people will believe a lie. Why? Yeah. But did you see that video though? Did you see the video? Right. The promo video that got all those people sucked into that. And you'll start to believe that lie. Right. And when even that's if presented. you're on the island and you're seeing that it's not working, white people would rather commit to the lie than be accountable and say, this isn't going to work. Let's pull out. And who show, but this ultimately benefits only really like one person, right? And that's also kind of- Ja Rule. Ja, that's what, what I was going to say. Ja, ja, I think Ja Rule <laughs> actually made out of this whole thing. <laughs> Jabu really got away with yeah. really got away with this. And he's still on his bullshit. <laughs> who you know who else is still on their bullshit? Let's move on to actually the next documentary. So this is a wood uh, a, a documentary being produced by um Music Box um mm-hmm. and it premiered on HBO. It's called Woodstock 99 Peace, Love and Rage. The promoters of the original Woodstock um, actually went on to produce two more Woodstock-themed events, one in 1994 and one in 1999. Um, and these folks are also clearly still still on their bullshit because as they're being filmed um, for this documentary, they act like nothing happened. So that nothing went wrong, that they didn't do anything wrong, that there was no accountability on their part. And so I'm gonna read the log line for uh, Woodstock 99, Peace, Love and Rage, and then we can chat about it a little bit. Unfolding over three blazing hot days and nights of nonstop performances and heaving mosh pits, a July 1999 music festival promoted to echo the counterculture idealism of the 1969 original instead devolves into riots, looting, and sexual assaults. So I think pretty early on in this documentary, I, th- I-, I want to give this documentary credit for getting really close to the point. Um, Early on in this documentary, what is mentioned is um, our belief of what Woodstock 1969 is based on was also actually kind of untrue. Like when we think of Woodstock, Woodstock 1969, we think of peace, love, happiness. It was just a joyous affair. Nothing went wrong. All of this is based on like a memory that millennials have of something that we've seen on TV. Um, a lot of things actually went wrong at Woodstock 1969. People died, but we don't hear a lot about that. So then what these promoters decided to do was to only take the positive from Woodstock 1969 to produce a 1999 festival that was just, it was completely misplaced in the zeitgeist for a number of reasons. 
Um, Jawara, can you talk a little bit about when you watch this documentary? Um, we were probably like 15, 16 in, in, in 1999. So we were watching this all unfold on MTV. There's a clear memory of, of, of this festival happening for you and I both. Yeah. Can you give yeah. me an idea of, of what, you, what you were feeling while you were watching this? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it's something that really hit home because it was going on, you know, during our lives. Like when I, you know, first met you and, you know, during that time period, like this is real life. And I remember watching it on MTV. And it's interesting watching it now because uh, it's a lot different from this perspective, you know, to see it behind the scenes and everything going on and, and, and to not only see it from their, you know, one uh, perspective. And, um, you know, at the time it was, it really felt like, you know, spring break MTV, you know, meets Woodstock kind of vibe that they were going for. And I personally thought that was kind of cool. You know, I'm not going to lie. I was like, Hey, all right, well, I get to hear like all these different bands and music and stuff that I like, and I like a lot of different stuff. Um, you know, even some of the like harder metal bands and stuff were very popular at the time. And so um, I just, I personally thought it was weird that it was called Woodstock. I, I couldn't make the connection myself. I was like, okay, like I get all of this. And I like the way that, that Moby put it in the documentary because Moby called it um, Ar Army Base Rock 99 is what they should have called this show or this experience. And he was right though. Uh, not to mention, well, all right. So first of all, Moby's got his own little hangups with appropriation. Do you know about that? He really he does. does. He does. He really does. <laughs> so there's that. It's like this whole, you know, layers to it. But, um, you know, he does bring that point. And, you know, I immediately thought the same thing at the time watching it. I was like, how could this possibly be framed out as Woodstock? Like I get it's a music festival and everything else going on. Um, but it just felt like something that was sponsored by Girls Gone Wild, you know? And like, yeah. so where is the heart? of any of this and then as you saw them try to do they tried to like wedge in like oh we'll just put jewel here you know what i mean and we'll just like well pepper in a little uh you know uh, uh alanis morissette you know uh before we you know before fred durst gets up here and tells everybody to just you know like braid braid something um you know that you could it was just really bizarre you know when it really felt like they just it felt like i had one of those like cd cases from the 90s with all my cds that i just like dropped it on the floor and they were like all right, that's the lineup. Let's roll with that. You know what I mean? It was just so weird and random. Um, you know, and it was like this mixture of, but I actually said so to get real though, at the time, you know, I was also personally dealing with a lot of, of issues with like toxic masculinity being like the thing. It was like so cool, you know, at that phase of time in the nineties, um, you know, or culturally accepted, you know, I should say to like, to be that way. And, you know, there was a lot of pressure there's a lot of pressure for a young man at that time to fall into that, you know, to get sucked up in that and be one of those people that's, you know, there in the front row. And um, you could see it. I could saw it happen to some of my friends too. Some of my close friends, you know, would be the ones that would, I'd be like, bro, like, what are you doing? You know, or like, you can't touch that girl like that or whatever. But, or, talk, or talk about her but, like that. Or talk about her like that or anything. But it's like, it became so normalized for them to see it on MTV and have it celebrated in this different ways that it became this, you know, personal fight for me to, to overcome that, you know, my friend circle, whatever else, which pushed me to be more of the crowd that would have been hanging out, you know, at Woodstock, but like at the night rave party. But it's like, they couldn't even figure that out. That, that part was just as violent, you know, and everything as the rest of it. And, you know, it just seemed the whole thing just seemed like such a corporate cash grab that left just nothing but disaster in its way corporate cash grab 
I, I, I'm, we're going to come back to that as we touch on our next documentary, uh, The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, because I think that term really uh, captures what goes on in that space as well. Um, some notable moments from the Woodstock 99 documentary, uh, Peace, Love and Rage, is when the audience is trying to recreate um, the playing in the mud oh, no. that we see from a lot of the imagery oh, from no. Woodstock 99. Yeah, yeah, then, yeah. You know, in the archival footage and, and, and the uh, conversations about that moment, we found out, we found out that <sighs> the mud that the 99 kids are like playing in is actually like sewage from the porta potties that are all not functioning anymore. No. It's yeah. like dancing and playing yeah. human waste, thinking that they're <laughs> recreating the rain and the mud from Woodstock 1969. Um, so, so Kate, what was like a notable moment for you from that documentary? Um, Okay, so in 1999, I was in kindergarten. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So my first experience with Woodstock 1999 was this documentary. Okay, right? cool. And, cool. and I mean, I knew, I knew, you know, I know the bands. Sure. Okay. But walked into that documentary and immediately got January 6th vibes. Like January 6th, as in insurrection. I, there's, there's gotta be a correlation. We're gonna make a Google Doc. Woodstock 99 attendees, the correlation to the insurrection. Because oh, there's, there's a Venn diagram there happening. Something there has to, somebody, somebody's got to do it. It's not going to be me. It was a prerequisite to show up there. Like, you got your uh, Woodstock ticket set? You All your, right. You Come your, on into the Capitol. Like, show instead of a vaccine card, it's the, yes. So, but, but what I saw was just, I mean, for me, watching that documentary, it wasn't, it, it feels like a time I can't relate to. Mm -hmm. I can't relate to like the, that vibe of toxic masculinity, but what I can see is the remnants of it. Mm. I mean, watching them play in literal human waste, tear down the paintings that were done in um, like reverence to the original Woodstock, having two female artists asking i mean okay oh wait the fires that were started with the candles say, let's yeah. say there was a candle columbine the candles columbine. from columbine yes. people show up to show reverence to columbine to pay honor and then they literally start the whole thing on fire which on, i thought was like I, what i saw in the woodstock 99 documentary was an absolute lack of accountability on leadership's part mm -hmm. and because of that lack of accountability there was unfettered power. No one checked it. There was no idea of um, what there was no there was no <laughs> there was no mission statement. There was no strategic plan. There was no vibe. They're bringing in primarily angry white men who are disillusioned mm -hmm. by this world that we're living in. And but they're being sold a dream of the Woodstock 99 peace, right. love and happiness of actually it didn't exist well, in 1999. Is, is the thing is that with Woodstock, and that's another question, right? When we sell a story of peace, love, and happiness of the original Woodstock, which is still unchecked for power, people were raped there. People, people were, yeah. died yeah. there. People did yeah. die there. People right. did die there. So whenever and people set shit on fire there too. 
at yeah, the original so Woodstock. Whenever you tell this story of hippie peace and love, and then suddenly you try to recreate it, but you don't actually ever address the problem. How could you ever have anything different? Mm. How could you ever have anything yeah. different? Right. Yeah. Great. So Woodstock 99, live, laugh, love. That should be their slogan. That's what we're saying. Yes. <laughs> Woodstock 2025. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, last thing on that. Weren't they, they were supposed to have another one. Woodstock 15, and for some reason it got canceled at the very last minute. I wonder why. Right. Yeah. Probably for the best. Can't imagine what happened there. <laughs> Um, corporate cash grab. So in the uh, next documentary, uh, we're going to switch it up real quick. I'm just going to speak for a second. Um, in the inventor out for blood in Silicon Valley, um, a new invention promised to revolutionize blood testing. Elizabeth Holmes became the world's youngest self-made billionaire, heralded as the next Steve Jobs. Then, just two years later, her multi-billion dollar company was dissolved. Um, so in, in The Inventor Out for Blood, it's an HBO documentary. It, I think it came out, it came out a few years ago, probably like three years ago or so. Um, I love having this documentary on in the background of whatever I'm doing. Um, just because it's, it, there's just so much nonsense that goes down here, but it really feels... The part in this documentary that that becomes very real is like again the the like messianic belief that there's one leader, that there's one person with the truth, that there's one person who's going to revolutionize it, um, uh, our world or revolutionize communities. Um, when it's like if that that only happens once in a blue moon, right? And if you don't have the actual technology to back it up then it's going to go wrong. So in this leadership style of Elizabeth Holmes, she is really kind of like the quintessential example of believing her own bullshit so strongly that she convinced world leaders, mm. she convinced politicians, she convinced very wealthy people that her way was the way without a business plan. No there, evidence. There was no evidence that what she was selling <laughs> was real. There was nothing. So um, a behavioral economist explains, um, and this might relate to a lot of the different leadership styles uh, or like the, um, the, the, the leaders that we talk about in all of these organizations and these groups. Uh, behavioral economist explains why Elizabeth Holmes may not have felt bad lying about her company, Theranos. Elizabeth Holmes, founder of the now def defunct startup Theranos, has been accused of fraudulently claiming that her company's technology could perform health tests using only a small amount of blood. So yeah, so people who knew what they were doing knew from the beginning that this was not possible. Like this is this, this, no way this is real, okay? It turns out, there is psychological evidence that people can lie while convincing themselves they're doing the right thing if they view it in the service of a good cause. So we're going to add a link to this article in the description of the podcast. It's very interesting, and I'm 100% not qualified or intelligent enough to explain the details of the experiment. But basically, it involves people being able to trick lie detectors when they are lying to win or receive money with the ultimate goal of giving the money away to a good cause or to benefit someone else. Um, to me, that's kind of describes 
what a nonprofit is. Mm. Uh, but let's stick to the topic. Um, this notion in this experiment illustrates how it's possible for someone to commit fraud as Holmes is accused of doing while still believing fully in one's actions. Uh, cheating in the service of altruism isn't really cheating and is therefore morally justifiable. So th there is like a psychological reasoning for consensual delusion, as we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. So in the scope of the documentaries that we've just talked about and in the scope of like thinking about this experiment, does, this ex uh, does the explanation of this research clarify anything uh, for either of you? Jawara, if, if, if you would like to, to start there. Uh, yeah, sure. Even without the research, even without the science, that's something that I picked up on immediately with all of these people that seem to be you know, leaders um, in these organizations. They all seem to have convinced themselves that they're doing something greater than life itself and the planet and, you know, whatever, you know, religious deity you, you know, pray to, they're going to do it better than them. And that whatever they have to do in order to complete this, you know, mission from God, they're going to do. And everything else is justified as long as that happens in the end. So that's a pretty convenient place to be if you're trying to, like, you know, take advantage of people, isn't it? Ooh, it's yeah. Convenient is a good a good way. I was you know, say, this this study is really uh, what something that we do as white people is we love to use a psychological study to academia academia to justify being fucking assholes. So like, sure, it's nice to believe your lie, but at the end of the day, isn't this just part of whiteness? Like all of these things are just part of whiteness. Who are we studying? I mean, where does psychology base its stuff off of? It's based off of white people. That's the default. It's convenient that we find a way for this to be um, Ex academic and excusable and absolving, absolving and yeah. find sympathy. But at the end, but, but this was first, it was people taking advantage of an American dream that's never going to be real. It's other people having free will and looking for someone to absolve them and to lead them. And then it's also just, you know, capitalism. Well, white people will find a way to not like be at fault. Right. I'm excited to talk about that going forward in the, these next ones because it really <laughs> gets violent. It's more than just losing your Lexus or having <laughs> stinky leggings. Right. It turns people die. So in, yeah, that in, is that is that is the um, outcome of that. I have one other thing to say about her before. Yeah, please. It's just like the other thing I noticed with Elizabeth Holmes, specifically Steve Jobs is known for this, um, and all of the leaders that we've seen, they all create this distortion reality field, you know, around them as well too. And it's just like anyone or anything that steps inside that, like unless you believe their bullshit, they're absolutely gonna, you know, kill you probably <laughs> from most of these places. But you're definitely going to. Um, wish that you had not. And everybody else that's within that same little force field believes everything that's in there. And that's part of the tight group. And um, nobody else can get inside of that. It's impenetrable at that point. Right. right. And, and, and so that's when actually like, that's how we talk about the things becoming culty very fast because you have to believe in this philosophy. You have to believe in this ideal to be part of the group. And if you don't any longer, if you show your hesitation and all of these documentaries from something as innocent to which to like the belief in the American or in, in like peace, love and happiness without interrogation 
for Woodstock 99 or like a fire festival that will happen on an island where it's just like supermodels in the water everywhere. Yeah. It's just like paradise to like actual real harm caused by the documentaries we're about to talk about. In all of those spaces, it becomes culty in the moments when when you doubt what is being sold to you, you are going to be ostracized. I think that's interesting because, right, you're going to be gaslit. You're going to be told you're divisive. You're going to be told that you're having, they're going to use toxic positivity, spiritual bypassing to tell you, and that that ends up being tone policing, right? And that's where white supremacy walks in. Yeah, well, right, supremacy was always She's always in the room. She's always in the room. So, okay, so this is a, a really great transition. Thank you both so much for like participating. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun. We've had, we in most of these documentaries, you have people who are making a choice to participate or to invest in others or projects that are sometimes clearly nonsense, but for the most part, just carry a ton of red flags. Um, but choices are being made and we've been like joking around and there's, there's some innocence involved, um, here in the sense that like the the harm that was done was really just like really by people's own choice. They could have walked away at any time. A few other docs I want to address today feature organizations and individuals who explicitly use positivity culture and spirituality to actually really, really cause harm. The level of consent in the following stories decrease as participants feel like they are getting closer to enlightenment, but in reality, they are becoming more complicit in aiding the false promises of community made by often charismatic leaders. More than red flags, in the following documentaries, we are going to discuss uh, the actual abuse that is taking place. There's harm being done, in some cases, people lose their lives. In these following docs, leaders who have convinced themselves that that their way of living, their way of thinking and their way of being is the only true way to live a life that will help you find something greater than yourself and an ultimate feeling of true enlightenment. Ultimately, the following documentaries reveal what happens when white people bastardize aspects of traditions or cultures that are not their own and misuse it to control a group of people. Let's start here um, by talking about uh, Bikram. Uh, Bikram is a documentary that was, is a Netflix original. Um, The full title is Bikram, Yogi, Guru, Predator. This documentary charts the rise and fall of hot yoga founder Bikram Chowdhury as his global empire is born and disturbing revelations come to light. Um, Kate and Juara, can you uh, just, you, you both recently watched this documentary. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, the most kind of like notable points where we see um, the, the whiteness and the cultiness kind of like taking over from something that is perceived to be as like innocent and helpful to a good life um, as, as, as yoga is, is perceived. Yeah. Do you ever do yoga, Kate? I have stretched. Okay. But I'm not going to pretend like I know the deep depths and like spiritual significance of yoga. Um, but I did, it is a teen work at a white yoga studio. So like only white people were, were allowed. 
I mean, isn't that how most you <laughs> like, It is you know, kind of that vibe for sure. Right. For sure. Actually, if you look at that documentary, that's one of the takeaways that I got from that. I was like, at all times looking in this room of 500 people or whatever, I'm like, where are the black people? There's gotta be any people of color in here somewhere. Most of the time it was not. I think there was one lady and he made fun I, of her specifically for being black and then she left and that was it. Yes, Juara, actually you made a really good point here. So in all of these documentaries, there usually is, and all of these organizations and groups, there usually is like an annual co- uh, culmination or an a- annual gathering of people coming together and like celebrating this theory, this practice, there's workshops, there's parties. We talked about it with the WeWork documentary, with the summer camp, summer camp. Lulu Rich, Rich. has the um, annual cruise. Um, we have the um, a Bikram has, you know, the, the, the coming together of the uh, yoga leaders or the, the teacher training program. The Nexium cult also has um, a summer camp. So these are all events where you are, what you just mentioned, you really only mostly see white people. And, and yeah. what I think yeah. is like really interesting there is this is why when you invite a black person to a party, they're going to ask you <laughs> who's all there <laughs> before we commit to attending. It's true. Correct? It's true, we know. It's true. Yeah. 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 Uh, I know. There's nothing worse than that. You walk in a, you know, room of a hundred people, you know, and you're like, okay, all right. I guess, you know, um, they're going to start asking you some questions about, you know, uh, uh, sports or whatever. You know what I mean? Like whatever, like random black person thing. You're like, all right, I got to I got to get ready for all the questions coming up. You know? So, uh, so in, in this like really like spaces of extreme whiteness, Kate, where do you see, like, how did that whiteness lead to the abuse and, like, the rape that Bikram committed on his uh, teacher, uh, on some of his students? Um, How was that, like, allowed to just continue to happen? Where do you see the correlation between just, like, whiteness and, like, people allowing this person to continue to cause harm? So I think that one of the things that Bikram is different from these other documentaries, right? The leader is a brown man. Right. He's a brown man. And one thing that white people love is we love a magical brown person. Mm, We're going to look for someone to co-sign spiritual bypassing Mm -hmm. because yoga is not ours. We really shouldn't be practicing it. We can stretch. That's fine. Why does it have to suddenly become spiritual? But finding a like a quo magical brown person or black person to co-sign spiritual bypassing and then to let his abuse go unfettered, unchecked, and just run rampant. At one point, a co-worker or a, a, a participant says, yes, he was accused of all these things, but like my back bend has never been deeper, which I Woo! I interpreted as I yes, know. yes, yes, he's nice people, but my downward dog is really solid right now. And and for me, the white supremacy comes in when we get co-signed. We will look for a black person, a brown person to co-sign us doing something toxic in exchange to protect their power. Right. It's a transaction, right? Sure. You're going to let us have access to this space, which by the way, we made illegal. We committed genocide for, for we have Hindu phobia is across the globe. But if you give us the pass to come into these spaces, We'll protect you in this. I mean, there are women 
There are there are women, there are queer people throughout this documentary protecting this man's abuse. Right. Because of what they allowed, the individual growth they believed they got to have. There are women who were assaulted by this man who still continued to follow him because it allowed them to open their own yoga studio. Because right. he's the only person that can sign off on you having your own studio. Right. That's exactly. a nice rule to create. Exclusivity, right? Because that's yeah. the thing. Another thing that runs through this is there's a constant thread of if you want this, here's the, you have to, you have to jump through hoops to get it. So there is free will. There is free will. And that's a conversation. At what point do white women decide we're going to forego our own will, our own autonomy to have access to what we believe is quote transformation. Okay. So I I think that's a really great jump off point to get into the last two documentaries because what the followers of the following two documentaries we're going to discuss are really looking for is a sense of transformation, trying to have a new life, like really finding a sense of purpose and honestly something greater than themselves. I mean, we could talk about Lula Rue and say like, all right, these women are just like, they're trying to find an American dream. They are selling leggings by doing that or like, you know, going to a festival is going to like change my life for a week. But then I'm like back to work. But in um, the next two documentaries, we're talking about people who were really looking for deep, transformative experiences um, and and people lives were lost. People Mm -hmm. were abused. People were assaulted. So let's start with um, Seduced Inside the Nexium Cult. Um, I believe Seduced was produced by Amazon. This is another documentary where there were two versions of this that were published at the same, around the same time. So you really get a full scope of, of what's going on here. Oh, it was uh, produced, it was produced by Stars, developed by Stars. So Seduced, Inside the Nexium Cult is an American true crime documentary miniseries revolving around the cult Nexium and its leader, Keith Raniere, with a focus on the perspective of India Oxenberg, who was an executive producer on the series. Um, Nexium is one of the dark, darker documentaries, and I want to go into some of the major yikes moments uh, during the journey of Lex- Nexium. There are many. Um, but like a lot of the companies or organizations that we've talked about today, people are still following this cult. Keith Raniere is in prison right now, and he has some of his followers uh, doing fl- dance flash mobs in the street outside of his prison, still protecting him, knowing what he did. Um, something really cool about this documentary is that there's a lot of archival footage. Mm. Um, some of this footage was uh, pulled from promotional videos for the organization. Keith Ranieri was working on a documentary about his life. There was always a camera around Keith. So you really see all of the people who were involved here um, describe Keith and the program as they are living it in real time through this archival footage. Um, Some of the notable moments in this documentary, the major yikes moments, the biggest one for me was when you see Keith Ranieri in a workshop talking to some of his followers, um, asking them, could you rape a baby? I mean, what if I made it a really rapeable baby? Which is it's real dark. How do you sit in a space 
hear a person say something like this and not run in the opposite direction and actually go, this person is going to bring me closer to my to, to salvation. Right. I don't know. I, I wouldn't be one of those people, obviously, but I can see how that documentary specifically and that group, that organization, I can see how those people really were the ones that had the, I need to find something greater than me to change the world. And the whole time I'm watching this, I'm like, why don't you just go help some like black children or something? You know what I mean? Like there's plenty of like people out there that could use this level of, you know, like, uh, like, uh, you know, aggressive, just help that you want to like put out there and force people to be this kind of way. And it's just, why don't you stop for a second and look around your own communities that already exist and look for places to help there instead of building your own magic community out here in the middle of nowhere to solve your own self-created problems. Doesn't make any sense. Uh, would you like my white insight? I want that. I guess. Okay. You were invited to this uh, space uh, for your for your um, insight into It's definitely yikes. Oh, you're saying she got invited to Nexium. Oh my God. Yes. Oh. Uh, this is actually um my intro into inviting y'all to this no so actually first seduced and for the other the next, vow the, the vow, vow yes, yes the vow for me what stands out to me in the whole nexium story is how white people we are looking we are so we're craving transformation and community so much and, and part of that is because we have completely isolated ourselves from our ancestors, right? We have no cultural connections to our ancestors. Our connection is to power. That's what we view heritage. When you hear Ooh. about white people talk about heritage, it's not cultural, it's power and genocide. But also, but, but more than we want community and transformation, it's for our power to be co-signed. We want our power the power that we feel entitled to, to be co-signed. So it's like, how can I feel better about the fucked up things I do and who will tell me I'm extraordinary? Um, we are looking, we don't want, so another thing that white people do, and I'm sure as you guys in white spaces know, white people refuse to have power, right? We will be in positions of power. We will literally be in leadership positions. We will say, come here, have this conversation with me. And then as soon as the conversation starts to tread on our white fragility, we'll pretend like we have no power suddenly. But what we want is for someone to hold the power to guide us and so that we don't have to be accountable. So one thing that Keith Raniere does is he invites you into a space, he co-signs your bad behavior, he guides you to having power over other people all under the guise that this is for community. And it's, uh, this was also all based on lies, pretty much. I mean, right. Keith Raniere came, his background was actually in an, a company that designed a pyramid scheme. Like this man basically <laughs> designed an MLM. MLM. It always Straight comes back. Yeah, yeah, and then and he designed an MLM, <laughs> then, which is like this yeah. program that his followers are supposed to like sell to other people. The higher you go up in the organization means that you like, have more access to sell more of this pro of this program. He mixes in some a, a bunch of toxic masculinity and misogyny, creates a sex cult, mixes in some like wild parts of really different types of religions and practices of mindfulness, which actually include like real life brainwashing. And people let this man rock for 20 years across the globe. Yeah, yeah. famous people signed on. But like, honestly, that's just whiteness. 
So the thing is about Nexium and it's about all these white cults is that this is just whiteness. This it's, 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 it's shocking and horrible, but when white women are suddenly put and brainwashed and are put into a sex cult because we want to be productive, that's a documentary, right? right. <laughs> this is happening all the time. Yeah. yeah. This, we are abusing nonprofits are abusing black women across the board and pushing brainwashing brainwashed fake American dreams constantly. These are are large, large and shocking examples of what's happening every day. That's very, very true. And it's, uh, it is shocking to see that um, kind of space be created where all of that is then my takeaway, you know, was that that was all kind of like created and, and promoted uh, by the women, like he surrounded himself by this whole executive board was only right. women that you find out later on he was sleeping with all of them, you know, um, and all those women oh, co- co- coercing, his... co- coercing into sex. Yeah. Let's not yeah. say something co- that that involves consent. No, that's true. That's true. He, I'm sure he, you know, had them all, you know, underneath his uh, his control. But um, but for them to then go out and you see like legitimate uh, Hollywood stars and people like that. Um, that got involved with this organization that would go on to then rope in other, you know, women through this whole chain. And it was like all based around this lie that these women had this like, you know, place of power. And, um, you know, it was all really coming from him. But it's all white women, right? All white so women. Yeah, it's, it's rooted in whiteness and it's, it's and mo- like, mostly white women. And like the victim, the vic- the automatic innocence presumed of white right. women. There's not, and there's not a better like stereotypical or like, more identifiable with victim than a white woman. And that is like what Keith Raniere was really great in in, in, exposing here. Um, The last documentary, Enlighten Us, The Rise and Fall of James Arthur Ray. The meteoric rise and fall of motivational speaker, James Arthur Ray, who was convicted of negligent homicide after three of his clients died in a sweat lodge. So let's start here. A lot of the self-help culture featured in these documentaries are deeply rooted in practices that have been colonized. Yoga, breath work, mindfulness, First Nations practices like the sweat lodge. Um, We talk a lot about um, the call and response from the stage to the audience uh, that is that are rooted in gospel traditions from enslaved Africans. The first thing to remember here is that white people at various points in our history have made it illegal for black and brown people to practice in their own traditions. Think about reformation schools, not allowing enslaved enslaved Africans to speak their own language on uh, plantations and practice their uh, rituals. So when white people get to cherry pick from uh, ancient rituals with a goal uh, used to find oneself or make you feel good about yourself without interrogating power, it inevitably creates space for these programs to become abusive. So I wanna close off with just like analyzing Enlighten Us, the rise and fall of James Arthur Ray, a person who was convicted of negligent homicide after three people died in his sweat lodge. This person to this day refers to that as an accident. 
three of his friends died as opposed to three of his followers were murdered by him in a sweat lodge while he was like practicing a ritual that was supposed to make them feel better. Why are white people like this? Why do white people feel entitled to practices that are not their own for their own improvement? Jawara, to uh, close off here. Um, that's a lot to take in. <laughs> um, I would say my takeaway from, from all of this, everything uh, so far is that, um, you know, you, you, if you are so lost in yourself that, that you need to find, you know, that, that worth, um, you need to stop for a second and, and realize that if you're looking for that in some type of, you know, external, you know, leader, figure, whatever else, um, you know, that really, that, that needs to come from inside of you first. And you need to be able to uh, actively, you know, and intelligently uh, uh, disassociate yourself from, from people that, that would just manipulate you into joining, you know, their cult. Um, and there is some weird level of whiteness that goes along with it, which is with just this willingness to accept that for what it is. And I, I think it might be based on what you just described. And that's um, just the stripping of culture, watering it down to just these like useless parts. And then when you're left with that, there's no substance. So you, so you feel empty inside because you're living your whole life surrounded by these things and going to these meetings and, you know, going to this Woodstock concert, and, you know, um, where you're not getting anything out of it. And you're putting so much into it that eventually you get to the point where you get angry about that. And that's when things start to get off the rail. When you, uh, you know, when that, when that anger comes from inside of you, because you maxed out your credit card, you cut all your friends to sign up and this leader man, you know, um, won't do the thing that you need to do. And you haven't accomplished any of those goals. And it's now been 20 years of your life. Um, I see that desperation in a lot of these people in these documentaries. And I think um, it's dangerous and something absolutely has to be done, you know, in our society from the inside out to stop anything else from like this ever happening again. Kate, why are white people like this? Um, I mean, we're like this because we have spent the last several thousand years just ruining cultures. And we, so, I, I think that like we have white people, when people say white people have no culture, you know, that's like a thing, right? That's like a meme, that's very memeable. It's actually not true. There are ancestral traditions of whiteness, of white people before white supremacy took over. We have no access to them because we've spent the last thousands of years decimating, making it illegal to practice and then cherry picking other cultures. White people are like this because we are craving something better than power because power is actually not satisfying. And okay, yet- come on, Schmeagel. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's not satisfying. But if we don't look at, but what, well, so we want anything that'll feel good, right? Let's go to the yeah. yoga class. Let's buy the crystals. Let's, you know, be like, witches or some shit i don't know none of it is sustainable none of this is sustainable without actually addressing power because that's actually the first thing that happened was to establish power what happened like establishing a hierarchy creating white supremacy 
imperializing and colonizing the globe that 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 if you don't address that right then when you just decide that you want to feel good you're not actually looking at the whole picture and the thing is is that white women we will align with power every time and then when it betrays us like it inevitably will we're shocked and that's why we're the ultimate victim right because we choose 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 and then we're shocked well, and th- so just to, to close off, I think what, what we really sense here from all of these documentaries is that we are a people in desperate search of community and we're def- in desperate search of like the authenticity that comes with feeling connected to one another. But like you can't have community mm. if what you also are leaning into is having power, having a say, having one leader, having one idea. That's why a lot of um, restorative practices and like healing spaces, they form circles where everybody gets to say and everybody pitches in and people really rely on the balance that exists in those practices to like get the satisfaction that they want from actually having authentic conversations telling each other the truth, being transparent. Transparency is, 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 is something that is like desperately needed in order to have a community that is, that is healthy and that is thriving. And that is something um, that clearly is lacking in um, all of the documentaries that we've talked about. And I think we've done a really great job in like highlighting some of these points and getting to like the, the, the deeper meaning um, of these documentaries and of some of these issues. I've had a lot of fun with the both of you. I wanna thank you so much. I wanna thank Doc Leipzig for having us here for this fun conversation between friends about really important issues um, and, you know, uh, and whiteness. Juara, I appreciate you and your time. Thank you for, uh, for phoning in from Florida. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So good hanging out with both of you. Kate, thank you so much for joining me. You're my girlfriend and you're sitting next to me. So yes. I'll see you in a few minutes yes. also. Um, <laughs> I also want to thank the uh, programmers of Color Collective and specifically Lucy Merkerji and Charlie Hidalgo for uh, continuing to push the importance of um, having Black people talk about documentaries and film in any way that we like to do, um, even if it's in, in uh, slightly chaotic like today's experience. But I feel like I learned something. <laughs> And I hope you did too. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Shakira. Uh, Thanks, Shakira.